0: Hello, and welcome back to our Assassin's Creed ongoing ranting. I said I was working my way through Assassin's Creed 2, and indeed today I have beaten it, like, within the last hour, and I am already extremely frustrated and angry and very much want to talk about it, so let's... Dispense with the introductions and jump right in. Um, So Assassin's Creed the First was released in 2007, and again, it was very early in the life cycle of the PS3 and Xbox 360. It was very much a proof-of-concept game very much sort of dedicated to bailing Ubisoft out of some fairly significant trouble. I recently learned that they were actually in the midst of fighting a hostile takeover by EA at that point. So, you know, there was a very good chance that they would have been stripped for parts just like every other company that EA was buying in the 2000s. Um, But, fortunately or unfortunately, that is not how things went down. In 2007, they released Assassin's Creed as their sort of prospective... Prince of Persia sequel, and really, as we talked about last time, it kind of had some mixed reception. Generally, people liked it, it received positive reviews, people were psyched about a lot of the things that it had on offer, but there was a lot of criticism. The levels were repetitive, the missions were repetitive, there was a lot of just futzing around without doing the fun stuff of assassination missions and, you know, the whole running around trying to escape from trouble thing. Uh, But a lot of the game, like I stressed, kind of got overlooked and missed. The coolest parts of being an assassin, the way they were structuring it, the whole setting up your mission and scouting out your location, which again, the game was pretty obviously trying to steer you towards, was very much getting missed by 99% of players. And instead, all they had were a lot of gripes about, you know, the gameplay is too repetitive, it's too boring, there's too much, you know, frustrating crap, like beggar women asking you for money that you literally can't give them. So Ubisoft is sitting here thinking, okay, what do we do now? Now, in 2008, they released their big new Prince of Persia game, the one that had been in the works for a while. And again, Prince of Persia is their flagship franchise at this point in time. It's the big AAA game that they have been sort of relying upon for the last decade, it seems. Um, They released three big Prince of Persia games, Sands of Time, Warrior Within, and The Two Thrones, and they were kind of progressively... Not as good as the one before, so they know that this is this is the big moment. This is time to recreate the series. They're very much rebooting it from the ground up. We're literally calling this game Prince of Persia full stop. And in 2008 it came out, and nobody liked it. Like, in hindsight, it's fine. Like, a lot of people were really mean to the 2008 Prince of Persia, first and foremost because they thought it was too easy. There was no death mechanic in the 2008 Prince of Persia. See, in 2000-whatever-it-was when The Sands of Time came out, everybody loved The Sands of Time because it had this really cool time mechanic where when you had when you encountered some instant death trap, when you fell off a wall and into a pit of spikes or got like, cut in half by a saw blade or something, you backed up in time. You could reverse time to a point where you felt... Safe and you know be able to proceed from there, but that power was limited. So the game did still have a sense of danger, still did have real risk and real stakes, and was in fact difficult to play. But all the same, was kind of fun for this time reversing mechanic. Like it made the instant death traps frustration actually kind of amusing. Um, 2008, Prince of Persia. They decided to get rid of the time mechanic, which. I'm not entirely sure why they chose to do this, presumably this is part of the reboot, presumably they were thinking that they could reintroduce it at some later date, whatever the case may be, what they did instead was introduce a character who basically just pulled you out of whatever death situation you found yourself in. You fell off a wall and were going to die, well it's okay, you just go back to the beginning of the little area that you were in and it's no big deal. Um, But because of the layout of the game, it became incredibly predictable, and you had to go over the same areas multiple times, and then they really botched the ending when everything that you were working up to you just systematically destroyed in favor of this, again, lady who was saving your life the entire time. Again, it's not a bad game, and I think gamers at the time were especially harsh on it, because, again, it's 2008, there's a lot of other stuff going on at this point. Um, Gamers are increasingly inclined to separate between the Nintendo Kitty games for the Wii and the hardcore games for men on the PS3 and Xbox 360. Honestly, I suspect that if Prince of Persia was released on the Wii, nobody would have had a problem with it. But it wasn't. It was presented as a new entry in a hardcore franchise for hardcore gamers, and that's not what they got. Um, So everyone was mad about it, and all of a sudden Ubisoft is looking at their situation and saying, Oh crap, our flagship franchise, we tried to reboot it, and everyone hates the new format. The franchise that we have sort of, like, been working on, Assassin's Creed, with this new game that came out last year, actually got better reviews, but it has a lot of problems. Now, I suspect, like, obviously there's no evidence to back this up, or at least there's no evidence that I've been able to track down. I suspect that the team that was working on Assassin's Creed suddenly got some pretty new instructions at this point in time. Um... As much as the Assassin's Creed franchise had sort of built itself a skeleton, a proof of concept of what it was going to be, I imagine that Ubisoft executives suddenly showed up and said, we cannot fail on this game. Um, you need to make this awesome. Now... I also imagine that a lot of the changes between the Assassin's Creed I and Assassin's Creed 2 were already in the works by the time that Prince of Persia failed and everything got suddenly very exciting for Ubisoft executives. If memory serves, the original release date of the Assassin's Creed 2 game was supposed to be fairly early in 2008, but it got pushed back to November. I'm not, again, 100% on this. At any rate, what we ended up with, the, the sort of game that we had here did in fact do the job. Um, Assassin's Creed 2 very much switched the power dynamic in the Ubisoft universe, and Assassin's Creed became the flagship franchise, like, very much eclipsed the Prince of Persia series as a whole to the point that, like, 2009's Prince of Persia game was just, like or rather, 2010's Prince of Persia game was almost completely ignored and sort of disregarded, and instead everyone was excited for the new Assassin's Creed uh, release. So this is where this series goes from being this kind of experimental offshoot of the Prince of Persia franchise to a franchise in its own right. The franchise that we know as you know, the game that has been around for like 15 years and releases a new title virtually every year. That's what keeps the Ubisoft machine going through the late 2000s and the 2010s. That's what catapults them from this struggling game design company in Europe that is very much being eyeballed by EA for Takeover and turned into very much one of the primary game publishers in the 2010s. Um, So let's talk about what this game actually is. What it ships, what it's supposed to be. Let's talk pitch. Um, The idea here is, okay, we're doing Assassin's Creed again. We're going to do another big open world. We're going to have more assassination missions. But we have been listening. We paid attention to all of your criticism. So we are going to absolutely increase the variety of the gameplay that we're going to run into. Like, this is literally a back-of-the-box, like... uh, sort of like selling point here open world mission structure with immense variety like we were paying attention we also saw the zero punctuation video we know you were sick of all those pickpocket missions and eavesdropping missions and you know interrogation missions okay we got it we are going to switch it up a lot we're not going to be relying on just the same handful of missions over and over and over again um We're also going to improve the pacing dramatically. Like, we're going to have this immense epic story, the story of Ezio Auditore, and did we mention it's going to take place in Renaissance Italy? Now, This was kind of awesome to me. Like, when when I first heard that we were going from Crusades to Renaissance Italy, I was like, okay, I am still really excited for, let's do, you know, the French Revolution at some point. Let's do, you know, Meiji Japan at some point. Let's do Warring States China at some point. Let's do Russian Revolution or any number of other historical periods that I would have loved to see them do. But, hey... Renaissance Italy, you have my attention. I am sold on the proof of concept here. Um, Let's do that same game we did before, but during the Renaissance, yes, yes, more of that, please. Now, on some level, I have to wonder if this was motivated by a couple of things. First off, obviously doing the Renaissance is a fairly logical place to go. Um, The Renaissance is simultaneously, like, steeped in power struggles and, you know, assassination opportunities and all of these, like, petty squabbles between Italian city-states. Like, that totally sets up some really awesome potential gameplay, you know, gameplay opportunities. Um, But I have to think that at least part of the reason why we were gravitating towards Renaissance Italy, in addition to, hey, let's talk about art, or hey, let's talk about the Vatican, or hey, let's talk about, like, the power struggles and banking and all that fun stuff, um, I have to imagine that at least part of the reason we went to the Renaissance was so we could include Da Vinci. Um, Like, I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, because there are a ton of Renaissance artists that could theoretically have been included in the game, and you'll notice they are all not there. Da Vinci is there. Da Vinci is there all of the time. Like, you follow Da Vinci around for, like, years and years of Da Vinci's life. And in case you're thinking this is just an accident, nope, it is also a back-of-the-box feature. Utilize an arsenal of weapons and gadgets designed by Leonardo Da Vinci. Like, he literally makes it to the back of the box. So this is clearly a big deal for Ubisoft. And that also requires a little context. See, 2009 is also kind of remarkable-ish, because we were at the height of Da Vinci Code mania here in the 2000s. Um, It is honestly a very embarrassing part of 2000s culture, but there it is. We gotta talk about the Da Vinci Code. God damn it. Um, so The Da Vinci Code was a Dan Brown novel that was released in, I want to say, the early 2000s, and it quickly became the number one bestseller period of, like, all time. Like, I don't think we even need to, like, correct for inflation or anything like that. Like, as far as books that have sold numbers of copies in the world, I'm pretty sure The Da Vinci Code is still, like, number one after possibly some major religious texts, and there are some major religious texts that the Da Vinci Code beats out. Like, we cannot stress the sheer volume of Da Vinci Code copies that were in circulation by 2009. This book was freaking everywhere. In 2006, they made the movie, like the Tom Hanks movie. Like, let's put this in perspective. They got Tom Hanks... To play the main character, be like the biggest actor in the entirety of Hollywood in the 2000s. He's the guy they tapped to to make this movie a thing. Like, they got Hans Zimmer to do the score. Like, they are not kidding around. This is huge. Um, The cultural phenomenal weight of the Da Vinci Code cannot be underestimated at this point. So when we are suddenly saying, hey, we're going to do Assassin's Creed, but we're going to do it in Renaissance Italy, and we're going to include Leonardo Da Vinci, this is not just like, okay, fine, so you gave Brunelleschi Bertoles- a pass, but okay, we're going to do Da Vinci. No, this is because Da Vinci is somebody that people are literally obsessed with at this point in time. Like the History Channel has been releasing Da Vinci Code nonsense for Years at this point, like the Da Vinci Code is basically the primary reference point that people have to understanding the Renaissance at this particular moment in history. So I should have been suspicious of this at this point, but again, it's 2009, hindsight is 2020 as much as the Da Vinci Code is almost certainly one of the components that is being mixed in to make this game a success, at least, you know, some executive at some point almost certainly said, you know, you got to make this more Da Vinci Code. Um, I didn't pick up on it until literally like the last five to ten years. Um, Again, when you're right in the middle of the phenomenon, it's kind of hard to see outside of it. Um, so that's the pitch here. We're going to do Assassin's Creed. We're going to polish up the mechanics. We're going to increase the variety of missions. We're going to make it more dynamic and fun. And we are going to set it in Renaissance Italy, and we're going to have Da Vinci hanging around. So if you are a fan of the Da Vinci Code, hey, why not show up for this really awesome game that we're making? Now, on paper, this works. Honestly, in practice, this works, like, more than it does on paper. People loved this game when it came out. Like, when, in fact, Assassin's Creed 2 was announced and the critical reviews started pouring in, we're talking, you know, the usual, like, Grand Theft Auto-level praise. We're talking 95s out of 100s. We're talking, about, like, four out or 5 out of 5 stars. We're talking everybody getting totally hyped about this game and indeed you watch the zero punctuation review of this one and it tends to be a lot more flattering like he's got a couple of criticisms here and there again we'll talk about quite a few of them but generally speaking everybody thought this was a dramatic improvement over assassin's creed the first and i don't like it's complicated Half the reason I get into ranting about the Assassin's Creed franchise is because the move from Assassin's Creed 1 to Assassin's Creed 2 is positively fascinating to me. In part because I didn't have the totally positive, no questions, like no comments, just 10 out of 10 response that it seems like everybody else was having at this point in time. You know, as much as this was my formative franchise for, like, getting me into hardcore gaming, this was also the moment where I realized I was going to be out of step with a lot of the reviewers a lot of the time. Um, And my relationship to Assassin's Creed 2 is complicated. Like, there's a lot to like about this game. A lot of the things that they move to improve are, in fact, no question improvements. But it comes with some interesting drawbacks, some decisions that were very much sort of approved of and overlooked at the time and ended up kind of being more complicated than just that positive reception would have suggested. So let's start with the gameplay. Because, again, we did that last time, and this, I, I suspect, will be a pretty good format for sort of approaching these games in the future. But also because it is the place where the improvements are the, are the most obvious. Um, as far as the gameplay is concerned, just all by itself, the step from Assassin's Creed 1 to Assassin's Creed 2 is almost certainly an improvement. Like and a fairly dramatic improvement at that. This is what people were raving about. This is what all the the reviews were were absolutely praising to the stars. And generally, I tend to agree. Again, first and foremost, we got to talk about that variety. So in Assassin's Creed One, again, the thing that people were most critical about most of the time was the lack of variety. The same missions over and over again. Repetition was the thing that really damaged that game's reputation and sort of reception. We do not have that problem in Assassin's Creed 2. Um, we have included a wide variety of different missions now, and in fact, this the level of variety on display here is going to be the gold standard for basically every sandbox game to come for the next five to ten years. Like, as much as Grand Theft Auto 4 is going to come out and, you know, blow everybody's mind, in fact, I think it is already out at this point, um, as much as that is sort of like the game franchise that everybody points to, Grand Theft Auto 4 was kind of dark and kind of ill-received, and honestly, people turned out to like Saints Row 2 in hindsight a lot better, so variety is the watchword here. Having a lot of fun playing your sandbox game seems to be a crucial component. And Assassin's Creed 2 very much lives up to that standard. It is very much in the the line of, you know, Saints Row 2 versus GTA 4. So let's talk about some of that variety. Like, first and foremost, we have to stress, we are no longer in the kind of purely mechanical storytelling territory that we were with Assassin's Creed 1. Like, in Assassin's Creed 1, there is a pattern. And this pattern is rigorous and fairly restrictive. You start your mission at Assassin's headquarters. You get your briefing from Al-Mu'alim along with some philosophy and some discussion of what the Assassins are all about. You go off to whatever city it is, going through the kingdom, the big open world hub area that connects everything, if in fact you need to do that. You get to the city You get briefing about your target, you do a few, you know, missions of that same sort of three varieties, like you're going to do the eavesdropping, you're going to do the interrogations, you might do a race with some flags or something, or maybe some assassination missions later on in the game, and then when you are ready, you decide that you are going to do the assassination, and then you do the assassination. Now, again, the game is structured in such a way as to provide very little direction to the player. You have to go and find the missions. You have to climb the towers, reveal their locations on the maps, and then go get them, or just stumble across them while you're walking through the city. You do enough of them, you unlock the assassination mission, which you do at your own speed, because, again, the game is quietly encouraging you to scope out the area beforehand, plan your route, plan how you're going to get to your target, and go from there. In Assassin's Creed 2, we are not doing that. The openness is very much reduced. This is the model that's going to become pretty common amongst the Assassin's Creed games, and is very much just ripped off of the the Grand Theft Auto franchise. Namely, we are going to divide the game between the story missions that you are required to do, which are now in a pretty specific order 90% of the time, and which will succeed one another as though it were just a linear story. It's just a matter of when you choose to do each one. And on the other hand, you've got the futzing about stuff. You can go around and you can do any number of other missions or activities or things that aren't even, you know, missions or activities because the game is very very open. Um, On the one hand this is actually a step down from the openness of Assassin's Creed 1. Again it's less mechanically structured and more linear structured. The story is now just something you work your way through as opposed to something you kind of create at your own pace. Um, So that's already one of our big changes. But I should emphasize you know, that distinction between the story missions and the, you know, futzing about missions are now very separate boxes. Like, once upon a time, you did futzing about missions in order to advance the story. Now, it is very much just two separate categories. You can do each one at your own pace. You can stop doing one of them to do the other one. You can stop doing both of them and just walk around the cities. Like, whatever you want, this is how we're going to do freedom now. And there are some definite advantages to this. Like, the clear advantage is this does shake up the structure on a regular basis. Like, we do not have a formulaic, pattern-based, mechanical structure where you just have to check off a certain number of boxes in order to proceed to the next thing that we're going to let you do. Instead, we're going to walk you through it. You first come to Venezia, and we're going to have you do this mission where you walk around the city, and this guy's going to show you the sights. And then we're going to do a mission where, you know, you scope out your target, but it doesn't work out. And now you're hanging out with the thieves, and the thieves give you a couple of random missions to do, which admittedly you can do at your own speed and choose which one you want to do first. And then once you've done that, it's time to go for the big assassination mission and climb the tower that you couldn't climb before, and it's this whole thing. Um, but Again, this is going to proceed in a way that is purely linear. You cannot, in fact, just assassinate the guy in the place at your own will. That is not something that is open to you until you have completed XYZ missions beforehand. Like before it was, hey, complete any three of these seven missions and you can unlock the assassination mission. That's as much gating as we're going to do. Now it is you have to complete mission one, two, three, and four, although you can do two, three, and four in any order before you're allowed to get to the assassination mission, which is five. That's the rule here. Um, Now, again, the advantage is we can do any number of things with missions one, two, three, and 4. Okay, so we haven't done an assassination mission in a while. Let's do an assassination mission. Let's have you, like, assassinate some henchmen or some underlings. Um, So we haven't done, you know, a stealth mission in a while. Well, let's do a stealth mission. Or let's do, like, a you know, we'll we'll have you explore one of these subterranean cavern areas as one of the lead-up missions to sort of introduce you to that mechanic. Or maybe we'll just, like, have you hang around around and protect a character or have you escort a different character or have you follow a different character like we can now control the way that you interact with the various missions and therefore even if we do a follow the guide mission six or seven times over the course of the game we'll space it out so it doesn't seem repetitive even if we do have a you and the mercenaries go beat up a bunch of dudes mission three or four times over the course of the game we're going to space it out so it doesn't seem that rushed And importantly, this is kind of the formula that the game ends up following. There are effectively three different kinds of mission in Assassin's Creed 2, just as there were three different kinds of mission in Assassin's Creed 1. There are combat missions, i.e., go and fight a bunch of dudes, and you know stealth is not possible or strongly discouraged. Um, usually, when you're doing one of these missions, they throw a bunch of mercenaries at your back, so it's like this big epic conflict with like all these guys fighting each other. Um, then you've got your sort of stealth kind of missions, using the environment to your advantage kind of missions. Um, Usually you're hanging around in brothels and with prostitutes for these sorts of missions, and you can hire prostitutes to sort of like blend in with you when you walk through the streets and everybody's looking at the the prostitutes instead of you. Um, And you can use that to get close to your targets or to infiltrate areas you're not supposed to go into. Um, And the game very much sort of steers you to doing that. Likewise, you can also encounter sort of let's call them traversal missions, missions that very much emphasize getting from point A to point B in creative and interesting ways. Again, the one of the major things that the Assassin's Creed franchise has brought to the world of gaming is, we're going to let you climb all these buildings and traverse the territory in any number of creative ways. So there are numerous missions that sort of encourage you to do that, okay? Climb up this building, follow the rooftops to get a good look at your target, or follow this person, whichever way you want through the streets of Venice or Florence um, using whatever traversal mechanisms you have Um, so these are the three kinds of missions that we tend to emphasize the most are you playing stealthy on the ground level like hiding in and amongst crowds and using prostitutes as cover are you in fact you know traversing the rooftops going from place to place or are you picking fights with soldiers and getting into these big epic scraps um Now, essentially, there's still a lot that you can do within these three categories. Like, there's still a good bit of variety even within each of these. Um, So some of the game's most memorable moments are within these three categories. Like, when you were helping the general to escape, and you're, like, running through the city, but the general is this belligerent jerk, so he keeps picking fights with troops, which means that you keep having to defend him. There's a perfect sort of varied combat mission or alternatively there's this whole section where you're in the venetian carnival and you're hanging out with all of these prostitutes and they're guiding you to like all of these missions that are basically structured as carnival games it's really cool it's really well executed it disguises the fact that you're doing just the same thing over and over again it helps make it seem more varied even when the gameplay hasn't changed all that much um now, that said, this does go along with another big change that has kind of taken place here. Namely, you are way more powerful than you were in Assassin's Creed 1. Um, in Assassin's Creed 1, you had four weapons at your disposal. You had your hidden blade, which you typically use to do assassinations on the sly. You have your actual sword, which is how you usually interact with like people when you're fighting them. You have your fists, which you're really only going to use for interrogation missions to just intimidate people to get them to, like, spill their guts to you. And you've got your throwing knives, which you're only going to get later in the game and which are usually most helpful when you're, like, getting rid of archers on roofs from a distance. Um, They really aren't great for assassinations, and they don't really do the job in many other cases because they otherwise do pretty light damage. In Assassin's Creed 2, we are blowing this list up. Like, yeah, you got your hidden blade, but we're also going to give you a hidden blade that poisons your enemy and turns them, like, crazy so they start attacking other people and create this big distraction for you. Um, we're going to give you the ability to, like, not just use your sword, but you're also going to get this, like, short blade, which is faster and can get you out of situations more easily. And additionally, hand-to-hand combat is now a viable strategy for a lot of enemies because you can use your hands to disarm your opponents and then end up using their really cool weapons like pipes or axes or whatever against them Um, and in fact the brutes it's like the best strategy you have is to just sit there with your hands empty waiting for them to swing at you with a halberd and then you just grab it and then kill them with it Um, so there are a lot of variety to the powers that you have in addition you've got a lot of new distraction techniques you've got a pistol in addition to your throwing knives which really is just a very lethal ranged weapon You know, the the throwing knives are still doing fairly minimal damage. Like, you now need two of them to take down archers in most cases. But the pistol can do it in one shot. It's just also very loud, so it gets everybody to attract to you. You've also got a lot of diversionary techniques at your disposal. Um, You now have the ability to throw coins, which, thank God. Like, in Assassin's Creed 1, not being able to pay the beggars is so demoralizing all of the time. The solution that they come up with in Assassin's Creed 2 is actually pretty brilliant. At any moment, you can just drop 10 florins, like throw it to the ground. And this takes care of those annoying people who bother you. In this case, because it's Renaissance Italy, it's minstrels. Like they show up with their with their um, loot and they start like playing random songs for you and getting in your way and being really annoying. And you can just chuck money on the ground. And when you do, they just like drop the loot. And they're like, all right, I'm all about this money. Um, but in addition, the money also will attract a crowd which allows you to get people in the way of pursuers. Like if you throw money while a bunch of guards are chasing you, all the people will get in their way and make them stumble and fall, buying you more time. Um, Additionally, like it is in fact coming from a pool of finances. Money is now a thing in this game. You use it to buy stuff, Um, not just like throwing knives and other weapons, but you can use it to heal. We'll come back to that. Um... You use it to make improvements to your base, like there is in fact an economy at stake, although it is very broken and it is very easy for you to get all of the things and just have so much money you don't know what to do with it, which... I don't know, kind of seems appropriate for a banking family in Renaissance Italy, to be perfectly honest. Um, you've also got smoke bombs. You can just drop a smoke bomb, everybody around you gets stunned, and you can just pick them off. Like, this is so broken, and I love it, and it's wonderful, and is very useful in a variety of situations. What this basically comes down to is you will have a much, much bigger arsenal, for dealing with your various challenges you can hire prostitutes or thieves or mercenaries to get in the way of guards and then sneak past them in order to get whatever you know swag is is being protected by them or to reveal like your assassination targets for that matter um you can you know presented with a okay i need to chase this place chase this person through this area you now have a wide variety of sort of navigating the potential obstacles that you'll run into um, you have a wide variety of weapons to deal with the various uh, various enemies that you encounter but importantly the enemies upgrade to match. Back in Assassin's Creed 1, every enemy acted the same way. They would all, like, stand in a circle around you and then take turns attacking you with their swords and then you could, like, block them and kill them at your discretion. Um, Basically, all you had to do was make sure you were guarding when one of them took the opportunity to attack you and use the rest of that time on the offensive. Now, the same basic structure is present here in Assassin's Creed 2. Again, you get into a combat encounter, all the enemies surround you, and they take turns attacking. But importantly, the enemies now have new categories, archetypes, as the game calls it. You've got these big heavy-duty armored dudes who carry big, scary weapons like axes or pikes, and you can't defend against them. You can't just block them. You have to either sidestep out of their way when they attack you, or alternatively, like I said, use your disarm ability to take their weapon and stab them with it. You've got your seekers, who will specifically check all of the hiding places that you could be in if in fact they've lost sight of you. So if you were in fact hanging out in a haystack, they might, you know, poke it with a stick and see if anything comes out and you'll be forced to get out and, you know, run away from them again or fight them as the case may be. Um, You've also got a whole bunch of regular like troops who just Fight with you the regular normal way but you've also got agile people who can not just you know evade most of your attacks and sort of like deal with your counter attacks but who are also as fast as you are and can chase you over obstacles and therefore make it more and more difficult to run away um, now this is a really interesting balance because on the one hand assassin's creed one was pretty easy because even though it didn't give you a whole lot of power it made the enemies very predictable and very easy to deal with. Now, we have a wide variety of powers at your disposal, but the enemies do as well. And as a consequence, the game feels harder than it did back in Assassin's Creed 1. Getting into a combat encounter is not just a, like, time-consuming given that you're just going to win. It's just a matter of time and making sure that you don't, like, fall asleep at the wheel at some point. You can't just block and counter-attack your way to victory in every single encounter. You have to vary your strategies according to the enemies that you encounter and their sort of attack patterns and the way that they are engaging with you. Um, But up against that, you have a wider variety of dealing with them. Likewise, even when you're doing assassination missions, you have a wider variety of tools at your disposal. Like, it is a subtle but powerful tool that the game now gives you the opportunity to, like, jump on people from above or to like hang off of a ledge and then stab someone and drag them off the ledge or the fact that you now have two hidden blades and can kill two people at once. Um, This is huge because not only does it make assassinations feel more visceral and powerful and and sort of awesome to, to successfully execute, but there's also a cost. Anytime you use one of these flashy assassinations, you become more notorious. People recognize your assassination style and as a consequence when they find some guy who you you know jumped on from above to assassinate him you become a little bit more known in the community and you don't want to become notorious because at that point guards are immediately going to be on you anytime you walk past them and the chances of getting by them without being noticed is pretty negligible. Uh, Now, to get rid of that notoriety, you have to pull down posters or assassinate informants or bribe heralds in order to get them off your back, which is another interesting mechanic. Like, back in the old Assassin's Creed 1, once an assassination mission had been completed and everybody in the city was looking for you, it was this tense run from place to place. Now, instead, it's a little slower. You can sort of deliberately take steps to reduce your notoriety until finally it goes away and you are incognito again. Nobody is looking for you again. But, much as there is this wide variety of new tools at your disposal, wide variety of new enemies at your disposal, careful mission structure in order to sort of disguise the fact that they're using the same sorts of missions over and over, that you still have to go through an entire new area one at a time in Venice or Florence or otherwise, as much as that leads to a lot of really cool moments, a lot of memorable sequences and memorable missions and really cool things that are happening, we need to emphasize that it's also kind of not fun as the original Assassin's Creed? Like, bear with me for a moment. In the original Assassin's Creed, as I said, like, the really fun parts of the game are the assassination missions, planning your route to your target, your way out, and running away from trouble. Like, it is a lot of fun to just have a whole bunch of guards at your back and you don't want to deal with them because it's tedious as heck so you run up the side of a building and you get into you know one of the tent things and you hide there like waiting for them to all go by or you find you're getting ready to get into the tent things and it turns out that they're you know close enough to see you so you have to keep running and keep like evading them and keep using these hairpin turns and keep making mistakes and falling off of buildings it makes it really tense and exciting and fun but you're not going to do that a lot in Assassin's Creed 2. Like you can, and I frequently did, but the pursuit isn't nearly as threatening. Like even though we have these specifically like pegged new guards who are supposed to be fast and really agile and able to like follow you up buildings and stuff, generally the escape mechanic is way more forgiving than it used to be. First off, as soon as they lose sight of you, you get an indication on your map that says exactly where they think you are. Like there's this big yellow circle that shows the last place that they saw you and where they're going to check. And if you run out of the circle, they're not going to find you. And it's just a matter of time until like the, the chase meter goes dry. So all you have to do in most cases is just run really fast. Like in the missions that are more open world, like or open territory where they give you like horses and you're running over meadows and countryside, like in Tuscany or in Forli, you can literally just get on a horse and outrun these guys, and everything will just return to incognito and no harm, no foul. Like your notoriety won't even increase in certain situations. So running away isn't fun anymore, it's kind of guaranteed to work. Like Even if you are within their circle, there's a pretty good chance that they're not going to find you if you just hide out in a crowd or on a bench the way that you used to in the first game, even if it didn't seem terribly hard to work for it. What's more, again, since the notoriety meter can be sort of manipulated by taking down posters and so on and so forth, even when you should be feeling tense, it's usually just a matter of going over to the nearest like side of a wall, ripping off a poster, and now you don't have to worry about it anymore. The game is considerably less keen to have you in these tense, fleeing situations. The focus instead is combat is more fun. Assassinations are more frequent and more varied, so you want to get back to that stuff as quickly as possible. The running away is now downtime, bad news, not fun stuff. It is where the tediousness now is. But what's more, and what is significantly more important for our understanding of Assassin's Creed 2 is that the planning is gone. Like, totally 100% vanished. In Assassin's Creed 1, again, they're sort of pushing you towards scoping out your targets beforehand, scoping out the territory that they're going to be hiding and giving you hints like this is where the guards are going to be, this is where the scaffolding exists, will allow you to climb up the building much more stealthily and faster. That's all vanished in this game. In Assassin's Creed 2, you're going to basically have to do what Assassin's Creed 1 kind of allowed you to do namely, follow the marker. Um, In Assassin's Creed 1, if you just followed the marker, if you just did the missions, if you just climbed to the top of a tower, just did the specific mission you were supposed to do, the game could punish you in a variety of ways. Um, You could hide a Templar behind a wall, and suddenly he'd get notice of you and and would attack you, meaning you probably should have scoped out the area beforehand. Um, But in Assassin's Creed 2, there are no Templars. And guards will always see you with the same frequency and same regularity. There are no traps, there are no tricks, there are no deceptions. There is just go to the place we've shown you on the map, do the thing we're going to have you do, and then we'll proceed to the next mission. That works in Assassin's Creed 2 because again they've spent a lot of time carefully structuring the missions carefully organizing them so you're always doing something new something fun something you haven't done in a while the variety makes that totally plausible but the player is doing less of the work and as a consequence it's less engaging like it's fun to do all of the things that they're giving you to do it's fun to you know jump on a guard from a high tower or you know sort of like find this person secreted behind a bunch of guards and have to figure out okay how am i going to get past the guards am i going to like throw coins on the ground and or am i going to like throw a smoke bomb or am i going to get like the prostitutes to come in and distract them like that's fun sure not question that but it's all on the fly it's not you know I know that I'm going to be assassinating a person at this location, so I need to, like, get a really good sense of what's around there, what traps I might run into, where the good escape routes are. No, instead it's, okay, I followed this guy to this place, I've got, like, a minute and a half to figure out how I'm going to get to him, given these obstacles and these dangers, which is different, It means that the fun part of the game is what the developers are making you do instead of the stuff that you've come up with on your own. It means that you have less agency for a game that proposes to be so open world and to offer you so much power. It also very much doesn't encourage you to do that same environmental awareness, which is such a big part of the first Assassin's Creed game. Like, you still have to be aware of your environment. You still want to watch the crowds and see the way that the people are moving and the patterns in case you can exploit that to your advantage. But it is very much about adaptability instead of strategy. It is very much about taking assess an assessment of your situation right at this moment and using the environmental conditions you find yourself in to your advantage. Not... I need to know this whole city block, like the back of my hand, if I'm going to safely go around and assassinate these three guys that this person just asked me to assassinate. That is not what's on the menu anymore. If somebody asks you to assassinate three or three guys, you're going to get three markers on your map, you're going to go to the location indicated on each of those three markers, and then you're going to figure out what you're going to do in that situation. You're going to look around and say, okay, you know, I found my target, he's over there, how do I use the crowd movements, how do I get around the guards, how do I find a, and go from there. It is about working on the fly, instead of preparing carefully in order to get to whatever you need to do. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. What I'm saying is that this is a lateral On the one hand, again, variety is good. We like variety. We like the structure of the missions. We like the way that they're presented to us. We like the scripting. We like a lot of what this game has to offer and it does it well. But it also means that player agency is actually down for all of those fancy new weapons and fancy new tools and fancy new ways of interacting with the environment. It means that you are now constantly on your feet instead of taking time time that you choose to take for yourself to understand the world and interact with it in these predictable and important like ways to improve your knowledge and your awareness again it's not bad and it's working Remember, in Assassin's Creed 1, most players didn't take that route. They were just following the marker anyway and getting frustrated when they ran into any of the traps the developer is using to discourage you from doing that. Now those traps are gone. Now it's just go to the place, do the thing, using whatever tools you have at your disposal. And that's fine. But it doesn't necessarily improve the game. That It means that it's easier to play. It means that it is kind of dumber in some ways. Not necessarily a bad thing. There are lots of dumb games out there. There are tons of fun. But it means that we've moved away from that original design document, that original, okay, we're going to have you carefully strategize and plan your routes to your targets. Now, it might be worth mentioning that Ubisoft actually just picked up a franchise where you do a lot of strategizing, and where stealth is really the order of the day. Namely, they bought out Tom Clancy, and now they're doing Splinter Cell. And I should stress, Splinter Cell is one of the biggest franchises in the late 2000s, early 2010s. This is a big get for Ubisoft, and it is going to be the place where they sort of devote all of their energy. Um, like, Assassin's Creed is gonna move away from the pure stealth game, the pure strategy planning game, because if you want that, you've got your Splinter Cell to do it for you instead. And that's fine. Like, I was never a huge fan of the Splinter Cell games, mostly because of the aesthetic. Like, I mean... Tom Clancy's fine, but again, all the, you know, 90s and 2000s conspiracy theory nonsense just really isn't my bag. Give me, you know, historical, famous historical places and times any day. Um, So again, for me, this was a bit of a bummer. Generally though, again, it's more of a lateral move than a real dramatic improvement or a real dramatic demerit, I suspect. We've moved in a different direction. And that direction makes more people happy and sells more copies of the game and responds to all those criticisms we received the first time around in a way that actually is way easier than actually addressing the problem. See, between Assassin's Creed 1 and Assassin's Creed 2, there is a sort of fork in the road. And I kind of envisioned the team sort of facing this question. Do we want to double down on the planning mechanics to really shine them up and make them work? Or do we want to take the mechanics we already have, polish them up to a mirror shine, give a wide variety of tools and powers at the player's disposal, and just let them go nuts? Let them play the game they want to play it, or let them play the game the way that we want them to play it? And at the end of the game day, again, it's 2008, Ubisoft is in the toilet, we've got to, you know, make this game work, they went popular. And that's, that's fine. Assassin's Creed 2 is a fun game to play. But it's not a game you feel terribly smart playing, is kind of what it comes down to. And that's a bit of a bummer. But this is exacerbated by the fact of what the story becomes in this game. Now, again, the story is an improvement, question mark, but again, a kind of lateral one. The story is front and center here in Assassin's Creed 2, in a way that it kind of wasn't in Assassin's Creed 1. Like, in Assassin's Creed 1, your assassination targets weren't really like related to you. There was no personal reason that you were killing these people. It was just Abubalim said to do it, and then you have these elaborate philosophical conversations. So the whole game kind of plays out as this long, protracted philosophical debate with the people you're killing, which is fascinating. I think. Like I spent a lot of time last time talking about how much I kind of really appreciated this, as much as a lot of people thought it was boring and stupid. Um, here in Assassin's Creed 2, that is very much not what we are doing. No, we have a very traditional boilerplate story. Like, honestly, it resembles David Copperfield surprisingly well. You literally start with your introduction to Ezio Editore at the moment of his birth, when he is named by his father, and... I don't even know how this possibly even makes sense, like, from the perspective of the whole structure of the Animus, and it's like, are you reliving the baby's memories, or are you reliving, like, your dad's memories? It's really hard to to figure out what the deal is there. Um, Suffice it to say, we're gonna tell a more traditional story here in Assassin's Creed 2. Not, you know disgraced assassin has to come back from shame by interacting with elaborate philosophical problems, but instead it's Ezio Auditore is part of the Auditore family, his parents are killed, spoiler alert, in the like first 45 minutes of the game, um, and now you are avenging. You get wrapped up into the whole assassin lifestyle and killing off Templars, not because of these major, you know, long-standing generational factional disputes, although they will play out by the time that the game ends, but because you've got a personal grudge against them, and you are doing your father's job. You are avenging him. Um, You like murder the guy who was who particularly betrayed you earlier on in the game and you have this like violent like oh you kill my father angry murderer scene but really it's Borgia it's the Spaniard who is the architect behind the scenes and you're working your way up to him moment by moment like uh mission by mission and this again works it's fine it's a Good story, like, on that whole revenge circuit. Like, it very much follows in the footsteps of many a revenge story. It's basically just John Wick again, like, or rather, John Wick was after this. So, you know, John Wick is sort of the current, like, apotheosis of the basic revenge story, just blown up to crazy proportions. We're doing the same thing here, and it's fine. It works. Now, the framing device, though, that's another story. Like, I talked a little bit last time about this sort of tension between the framing device and the actual gameplay. Here, that tension is even more complicated. Um, In the original game, the whole... The whole sort of conceit here was that you were not actually Altair, you know, going around doing missions for all the Mualim. You were Desmond, reliving your memories, reliving the ancestral memories of Altair, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great- great times a 1000000 grandfather, who, you know, was in fact assassinating people during the Crusades. And really, you're here to relive those memories so the Templars represented by Vedic are can, like, see what is going on and locate the piece of Eden that you found you have this, you know, historical sort of quasi-story, again, motivated by mechanics more than it is by plot, which is sort of overlapped on all sides by this conspiracy story where, you know, you're actually being held captive, and you know, that you're un- gradually unraveling, that there's this huge epic generation-spanning story of Templars versus assassins. The framing device here is pretty awkwardly implemented. Again, you are in fact Desmond, and you are in fact getting into the Animus, and you are in fact living the memories of Ezio Auditore, your ancestor who lived during the Italian Renaissance. Is this whole thing. But the framing device is only used very sparingly here. Again, probably a criticism that Ubisoft picked up from the response to the original game was they didn't like the Desmond sections because the Desmond sections are boring. And I was fine with the Desmond sections. Again, as I stressed the last time, I was fine with the conspiracy theory nonsense. It didn't improve the game for me. It didn't detract the game for me. It was a perfectly serviceable plot device to get the game going. In Assassin's Creed 2, they kind of figured this out and they kind of didn't figure this out. And it's weird how they get it and probably we'll come back to some of the things we've said earlier. Um, The framing device is quickly abandoned. Like, in Assassin's Creed the first, you revisit Desmond after literally every major mission. Um, like, you have to go to your room and go to sleep, and it's this whole thing, and it's like four or five times over the course of the game, you're going to be coming back to Desmond and interacting with Lucy and Vedic and, like, advancing that story in addition to everything else that is going on. Gradually uncovering more of the truth of the Assassins versus Templars fight in our own time. Here in Assassin's Creed 2, you will hang out with Desmond pretty much exactly three times. You will do it at the beginning of the game, where you have this exciting, tense escape from Abstergo, where Lucy is like beating the crap out of security guards, and Desmond realizes how useless he is, and it's this whole thing. And then you get to the secret base where the assassin Scooby group is, like, hanging out, and, you know, you meet the characters. You meet Lucy, who is apparently, like, they're tough. I don't know what the deal is there. You meet, you know, the girl who's going to be, like, monitoring your animus sessions, and you meet Sean. We'll come back to Sean. You immediately go into the animus, and you're there. For, like, half the game. Like, the entire life of Ezio in Firenze and Tuscany, like, all the way up to meeting his uncle and going back and doing missions in Florence and killing off all the Pazzi, All of this happens, and you never, ever, ever go back to the Animus. Like, I'm not even sure you can. Um, and then it breaks, and you have this, like, weird intermission thing. Where you find out that like by hanging out in the Animus, you've gotten all these powers and abilities, and now like Lucy asks you to like climb a bunch of boxes and you know get these switches in weird places, and it's like, hey, look, Et- the, his his experiences with Ezio are rubbing off on Desmond, hooray! And then you're back in the Animus, and you do all the Venice stuff, and you do all of the other assassination missions, and then. Surprise! Abstergo is attacking and you have to like come out and do this big finale literally while the credits roll where you're beating up Abstergo goons and like Vedic narrowly gets away at the last minute and the the assassins have to run because, you know, the Templars are too powerful for them. And now the game's over. So you literally go back to Desmond three times. That's it. The framing scenes are very dramatically reduced. And yet the framing intrudes way more frequently. Like, it's this thing in Assassin's Creed 1 where, like, the whole purpose of why they have Desmond going into the Animus is so they can reveal the location of the Peace of Eden. And, like, there's this big climactic scene where, like, the apple is dropped by al who you've just killed, and it reveals all the locations of all the other artifacts. And, oh, crap! They're all over the world! Oh, my gosh! This is so much bigger! And, like, mind blown. In Assassin's Creed 2 we're going to interrupt frequently and in fact we're never going to get very far away from the fact that the device is in fact framing the world. But we're not doing it mechanically which is just even weirder. Like in Assassin's Creed 1 there were numerous mechanical reminders that you were in the Animus. Like the fact that you don't in fact have a health bar you have a synchronization meter and when you do things that uh, Altair would have done, your synchronization increases. So if you take a hit, well, that's not something that would have happened to Altair. It's not like he was seriously wounded in this particular stupid fight with guards. Therefore, your synchronization goes down. But if you successfully kill that same guy without taking a hit, your synchronization goes up. If you find yourself anonymous, people don't know where you are, then your synchronization is maxed out in Assassin's Creed 2, that particular mechanic is gone. It's just a health bar, kids. And only ever a health bar. Which kind of is a weird choice. Now, it sort of makes sense. It's more logical from a game playing standpoint. It fits in line with more other games of this nature. The fact that there are specific guys who you pay to heal you or you have health potions and you can consume them at your discretion. Like that's way more intuitive for gamers who are experienced with Grand Theft Auto or Saints Row or any number of other games. But it doesn't follow the framing device the way that the Assassin's Creed 1 did. By contrast, Assassin's Creed 2 is also filled with little reminders that there are a bunch of people watching over you while you do this. Namely, every time you find some big new historical landmark, which is reproduced faithfully in all its glory, you come across San Marco, you come across the Vatican, you come across like all sorts of major landmarks, larsonale in, in Venice, you know, all these sorts of things, and you get a little notification at the side of the screen. Press select and you can learn more about this. And on the one hand, I am totally there for this. I love the fact that we are committing more to the historical accuracy, that we are spending this opportunity to actually educate the player. Okay, this is this building. This is why it's significant. This is why it looks the way it does. This is what it was built. This is what it's used for. This is how it would have been used during the Renaissance. Like, when you, in fact, make it to, you know, St. Peter's Basilica, there's a little note that comes up and it's like, P.S. Sistine Chapel ceiling hasn't been painted yet because Michelangelo isn't going to start on that for another four years. But here are some other paintings that would have been in the Sistine Chapel, and they do in fact get a couple of them right. They reproduce them like six times. I'm not sure what the deal is there, but they do in fact get a couple of actual Sistine Chapel paintings and put them on the walls. That's a thing. Additionally, there's other sort of like tidbits to sort of enforce this historical accuracy thing accuracy thing. We've got actual, like, painting shops where you can buy actual paintings that would have been produced at this point in time and decorate your awesome house, your base with them, which improves the base's, like, income, and it's this whole mechanical thing as well. That's awesome. I love the fact that we are actually dealing with real historical figures that the people were assassinating actually have backgrounds and lives were people that actually existed at one point in time like you will read a couple of letters that various characters in history have written to each other like at one point you deliver a letter from michelangelo to his patron you actually encounter you know the journals of your mother, Ms. Auditore, who suddenly went quiet for long periods of time. Isn't that convenient? Now we can have this whole dramatic video game take place during that time. Like, there is in fact a great deal of work making this game more historically accurate and, by extension, educational. But... All of these little tooltips and reminders and the videos you get about the various assassination targets and how terrible they actually were in history and why it's totally okay to kill them, all of them are voiced and sort of incorporate the voice of Sean, and I hate Sean's fucking guts. See, in your little Assassin's Scooby Squad, where, you know, you've got your three people who are taking care of you while you're hanging out in the Animus, and they're all supposedly doing important things, keeping the Templars off your back, you've got Sean is your sort of logistics-slash-historian guy. On the one hand, he's the one who's apparently listening to the radio waves and making sure that your base isn't discovered and reaching out to his contacts and trying to, like stall as much as possible, but on the other hand, he's also the history guy. So anytime that it's like, hey, you've encountered this really important historical monument, and you press that little select button to give you more information about it, Sean is the one giving you the information. And the game it's writing goes to some pretty impressive lengths to remind you that it is Sean. Namely, anytime that you've got the opportunity, Sean is going to drop in some witty snarky bullshit 20-something commentary about oh political corruption in the 16th century or oh the church was so short-sighted in the 15th century or oh isn't it hilarious that like prostitutes were you know doing this thing instead of and I hate it I hate it I hate it I hate every part of it like I do not want my history filtered through the perspective of Mr. I am so much smarter than all of these people. I am, you know, so wise to all of this political corruption and nonsense. Like I am totally going to call out people for being hypocrites and awful. Like, Don't get me wrong, a lot of these people were, in fact, terrible people, and I do not want to denounce that. Sean does occasionally give us some pretty decent commentary, some pretty decent contextualization for the stuff that's going on. But for every bit of really insightful contextualization that Sean offers, he gives us a lot of bullshit, like snarky comments, and and just pointed commentary on various historical figures and things, and it annoys the crap out of me like I hate it so much um and that's a weird thing to harp on for your reminder that this is the animus. like at first I didn't even know why I was getting these sort of snarky commentaries like I thought that the game was just going to deliver the the backstory to me straight like it you know like the the little note that you see under a painting at the at the museum or something like here is what this work means to the entire scholarly community here is where it's found here is the context go written from this quasi-objective scholarly standpoint instead Sean is just some punk kid with master's or PhD level knowledge of the renaissance and bachelor's degree level understanding of the morality and complexity of these situations it's jarring it's annoying and it really kind of takes away from your whole experience especially you know you're in this world that has been lovingly crafted you're seeing these monuments lovingly reproduced the game's mechanics is are encouraging you to sort of stand in awe of these structures this new renaissance art movement the simplicity of these buildings and their grandeur in, the, in the, at the same time and then sean pipes in and he's like oh by the way you know a whole bunch of terrible people built this building and also it was totally only made to like line the pockets of rich people and it's like okay you're right but that's not the whole story let the moment sink a little bit like you can't have this sort of duplicitous segmented like attitude towards this renaissance world if in fact we're supposed to feel relaxed and peaceful and sort of in awe at the the grandeur of these human accomplishments then you can't also just undermine it at every possible moment when you in fact want to learn more like that's a really weird choice there and i kind of am really frustrated by it it's a subtle thing like again this is one of those things that Most people probably aren't reading those tips. They aren't picking up on the fact that it's supposedly Sean giving you the commentary here. Maybe a fair number of gamers are legitimately smirking and enjoy the commentary. That's fine, I guess. I just find it really immature in a game that is, like I said about the first one, aspiring to a work of scholarship, aspiring to create a very believable representation of a time period that is very much lost to us. That's a heck of a thing. It's what draws me to this game over and over again. Don't belittle it. So, that's one major problem with the frame. The other major problem is considerably more intrusive. Remember last time when I said that the conspiracy theory stuff really didn't bother me all that much? In Assassin's Creed 2, it irritates the living daylights out of me. One of the mechanics that you will encounter fairly frequently in the game, and which is introduced very early so you don't miss it, is that apparently whatever core information or device they're using to power their animus has been hacked by whoever it was who was sitting in the Ebstergo Animus before you. Patient 16, he's called, because you're 17. And this guy apparently lost his mind, so that's a bummer. But he also hid all of this secret information about the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth of the dark conspiracy underlying the universe of Assassin's Creed. I.e. it's time to actually talk about the metaphysics of this conspiracy theory. So the way that this happens is on many historical landmarks throughout, you know, Renaissance Italy, you will find random signs, images, usually corresponding to the sorts of images written in blood that like blew my mind at the end of Assassin's Creed 1. And it really disappoints me that this is, like, the payoff for this. So, hey, you saw those really impressive long-looking things? Hey, there's the really impressive long-looking things on the side of this monastery. Or, hey, did you see that, like, object that looked very much like that one crop circle that's really famous? Well, here it is on the side of this one ra- random church or something. And when you look at it with the eagle vision, you have this little mini game which is associated with a part of your menu that is literally called the truth, and which corresponds to any number of little fuzzy, weird activities. And they're all so dumb and bad. Like, it starts with, okay, you're going to like spin these circles to reconstruct this famous painting, or you're going to like pick any number of certain paintings out of a list of ten, which all have something in common with each other, but then it sort of degenerates into, and now you've got this special little IR detector that allows you to scan really closely this one detail of the painting, and OH MY GOSH! Can you believe it? The apple that was on the Sistine Chapel is actually (gasps) THE PIECE OF EDEN! GASP! No. No, it wasn't. Shut up. And are you really suggesting that Michelangelo was, like, burying these secrets in the artwork, which can only be revealed through this, I don't even know, kind of weird technology that you've invented? that's in the animus, and therefore clearly doesn't, just, I can't, I can't, and it gets worse, not better, like, the conspiracy apparently sweeps through all time in history, and it's like, FDR had the Apple of Eden next to him when he was, like, making big plans, or, oh my gosh, Kennedy's assassination was actually a Templar plot, or the feud between Einstein and Tesla was actually, Einstein was a Templar, and he was shutting down Tesla, who was, you know, corresponding to the Assassin's to like the whole creed of freedom and stuff and at one point they actually have you like take the little apple of Eden and you like scroll it across a map and everywhere that you go it like lights up the little power plants because Tesla is using the, the piece of Eden to, to power his structures but then you then you relive the life of, of, of Edison and you take the same piece of Eden and you like roll it across the same map and you turn off all the all the power plants. It's so dumb and I hate it so much. Like it doesn't make any freaking sense. It doesn't really tie in that deeply with any of the other mechanics going on. It's an interruption of the story of Ezio as well as the story of Desmond even though like Rebecca will be whispering in your ear, wow, that's really cool, and oh my gosh, that's so important, and then finally, finally, you get all the pieces, you break all the codes, you find all the random stupid crap and all the paintings that are apparently accurately representing the exemplar assassin, I don't even know, and then finally, you find the truth, and it's this, like, 90-second video of, like, two naked people climbing up the side of a building, and oh my gosh! It's Adam and Eve, and they stole the apple of Eve. Um, um. No. Just no. Apparently, the big metaphysical secret at the core of the whole assassination Templar divide is okay, so. Turns out there was this progenitor race of like aliens or something who were super awesome and super powerful and had super advanced technology at the same time that human beings were like coming into their final evolutionary form so they like accelerated the process using their fancy gizmos like the Pieces of Eden. And now we're humans, and we're imbued with rationality, but not only that, there might be actually some possibility that one human made out with one of these progenitor beings, and that's why you have superpowers, and also the sun is trying to kill you, because, like, the sun did this solar flare thing maybe at some point in history, and it wiped out the progenitor race because it, like, reversed the magnetic poles or something. Just, I hate all of this. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Like, I can't help but think, again, here in 2022, with the advantages of hindsight, that this is all Da Vinci Code nonsense. I probably didn't say this about the Da Vinci Code, but it is stupid and dumb, and I hate it as well. Like, I feel like we don't need to say that here in 2022. We've all figured out that, like, our collective obsession with the Da Vinci Code was basically, like mass stupid hysteria in the wake of 2001's you know terrorist tragedy in america trying to like understand itself and you know the da vinci code just made us feel more powerful even though it is just an author insert i got to hang out with awesome people for a little while like bullshit and in 2009 i imagine that people were already tired of this stuff. I was certainly tired of this stuff. I certainly thought in 2009 that this was both offensive and dumb and offensively dumb. Um, In 2022, it's just painful. It's cringeworthy. It is the worst parts of the late 2000s all brought strikingly back to mind. And I hate it so much. So... This leaves us with a kind of troubled sort of situation as far as the story is concerned. On the one hand, it is well written. The story of Ezio is compelling. Um, I love the initial introductory chapters where you're introduced to Ezio's family and you have this like climactic thing where you climb up the tower and raise your brother and it's really cool. The music swells and like Jesper kind soundtrack, I have no complaints about. Just throwing that out there. Like, the music in Assassin's Creed is actually spot-on here in Assassin's Creed 2. I love the Venice theme. I love just walking across the rooftops of Jes- Jesper Kide's like, Venice soundtrack. No notes. Awesome. Keep up the good work. If anything, it just gets better later. We'll get there. Um, but at the same time, the story is, at best, compelling. At worst, serviceable. And then they wrap in all these layers of conspiracy theory nonsense, which don't even fit all that much with the Animus stuff, and it's just the worst of Da Vinci Code speculative bullshit. And I hate it so much, and it just dumbs down this experience even more. Like, my primary gripe with the gameplay was that it was made for dumb people. My primary gripe with this whole thing is that it is only enjoyable by dumb people. Like, I enjoy a dumb game pretty regularly. Like, I can absolutely get behind the, okay, we're just going to shoot things until everything is dead sort of gameplay. Like, you can totally do that right, and you can totally, you know, make a game that I really enjoy playing that's just stupid as paced. But Assassin's Creed the first was a game that was aspiring to a certain level of smart design, and Assassin's Creed two gave up on it, and that's a bummer. But it's okay, because they gave us something good in return. Assassin's Creed I had this really interesting sort of striking non-story thing with a totally, you know, benign conspiracy theory, which apparently our solution to that was, we're going to take down the logic of the frame and ramp up the conspiracy nonsense. And that just irritates the crap out of me. Like, that was just... All bad move, as far as I'm concerned. Now, it ends even more spectacularly badly. Like, we finally navigate Ezio into his final confrontation with Rodrigo Borgia, Alexander VI, and he assassinates the Pope, except he's not actually assassinated because he has the staff, the other piece of Eden, and oh my gosh, major boss battle ensues. Which kind of actually fizzles out, and like, after your big climactic fight with him, you just... You have a punch fight, and then you punch him, and then he goes down, and you're like, all right, now is my moment, and Borgia's like, oh, so kill me already, and he's like, no, I've learned. I'm like, really? Come on. Like, that arc has not taken place in this game. Like, yes, maybe revenge doesn't mean anything to you anymore, maybe you've killed enough people at this time, but like, where was the remorse, the last three guys that we murdered to death? Like no sign of this has existed any part of the game and Borgia really sucks and is the Pope and what you're basically doing is saying okay, you can continue being the Pope now like what the what the heck is even happening. But then just to make it even worse, you walk into the secret chamber and it turns out you were the prophet the whole time. Yeah, the prophet. Did you, did you know that you were the prophet? Did you know that there was a prophet? Yeah, we introduced that whole idea like half an hour ago, so I hope you were paying attention. But yeah, you're the prophet! So you go in, and boom! It's like the holographic representation of Minerva, the progenitor race. And she like, is like, Hey, thanks for visiting. P.S. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to someone else. And she looks directly at the camera. Like, the camera has very much disjointed itself from Ezio's perspective, and she looks directly at it, and it's so unnerving. Like, this is a big move, and it's a bold move, and used correctly, it would be incredibly powerful. Because when a supposedly divine figure who is at the core of this whole metaphysical conspiracy like, looks through Ezio and looks at the camera, the implication is, okay, we're not talking to Ezio, we're talking to you, the player. Yes, you too are involved in this elaborate conspiracy of... His- oh wait, no, it's just Ezio. Nope, nope, nope. You're the player. Nope. We're, we're, We're breaking the fourth wall, but we're only, like, half breaking it because we're only breaking it to Desmond and not to you. So you, player, should ignore the fact that she's looking directly at you into the camera and instead Desmond, and she says this literally at one point, like, Desmond, I am addressing this to you. And it's like, no, no, you missed it so hard. You had something, you played with it too close to the sun, and now everything is dead and everything is stupid, and I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Assassin's Creed 1's ending isn't great, but it was still kind of mind-blowing. It definitely solidified that. Here's our proof of concept. Are we on board for this? And I'm like, heck yes, sign me up. I want more games all across history with more, you know, philosophizing and so on and so forth and I'll tolerate your stupid conspiracy nonsense to get there. Here in Assassin's Creed 2, we threw the baby out and we kept the bathwater. We decided, okay, conspiracies are in, so we're gonna ramp up that conspiracy nonsense like crazy and totally misuse the tools of video games to do it. It's so much a bummer. Now, there's a sort of second question about the story that's kind of buried in this one. If my major complaint is with all of the conspiracy, unbelievable nonsense, the Chariots of the Gods meets Da Vinci Code bullshit that is just absolutely all over this game, you might very much be tempted to say, then we should lean on the historical accuracy instead. And to some degree, yeah, I'm totally on board with that. I like a lot of what Assassin's Creed to does to sort of make it more historically accurate to make it align more closely with the historical sources with the materials that they're using with the letters and the paintings and the actual buildings like that was something that was only sparingly used in Assassin's Creed 1 like there are a couple of recognizable landmarks in Assassin's Creed 1 like the Dome of the Rock and that's that's it like no no more than that like you get to hang out in Solomon's temple and that's That's the end of it. But here in Assassin's Creed 2, there is a great deal more of historical fidelity, and in general I'm on board with it. The danger, though, is that if you stay too historically accurate, you run into some fairly weird storytelling problems. Namely, Ezio has to jump around in time quite a bit in order to time his assassinations with the time that, like, actual historical people died, which is awkward but, you know, usually pretty forgivable. What's less forgivable is I have to leave the Pope alive because history would be radically changed if I killed him in 1399, or 1499, rather. Um, It's awkward that you can only include certain historical figures based on the time that you've chosen. And this is not a huge problem. It's something that I think the Assassin's Creed franchise navigates pretty well. But honestly, playing around in the Crusades, where there was way less historical evidence to sort of try and align with, where they felt comfortable inventing characters for you to assassinate that would have been plausible in this situation, but not necessarily representative of any specific person, meant that there was actually a pretty great deal of latitude if you combine that latitude with the new sort of gameplay elements, you could have a really fun game totally unlimited by the historical situation, and a lot of people would be able to give you a pass. This is a problem that Assassin's Creed is going to wrestle with quite a bit over the coming installments, so it's something that I definitely want to here, now that it's first sort of being brought up. Now that we've gone from we're making a Prince of Persia game, actually we're making a game that's set in the Crusades, let's include like a couple of people shouting about Saladin and Richard Third, and maybe even give Richard Third a cameo in order to make it feel real. Now everyone is real. Everyone's a cameo. All your assassination targets have great significance. But importantly, it's all really dumbed down. Which brings us to the important component that was so much a part of what I was excited about in the first game that kind of doesn't exist in the second. Anyway, we gotta talk about the philosophy. Like I said in my last lecture, the proof of concept of Assassin's Creed is, hey, new historical periods every time, opportunity to do all these cool assassinations and planning and stuff, which admittedly was jettisoned, but we're also going to use this as an opportunity to talk about the difference between freedom and order. The Templars representing order and the Assassins representing freedom. The Assassins have as their creed everything is permitted. And yeah, we do in fact get a line drop here in Assassin's Creed 2, but it comes like three quarters of the way, well, honestly, nine tenths of the way through the game. It really isn't terribly relevant. See, in Assassin's Creed 2, all that philosophy is just gone. Error 404, file not found. We're not going to talk about freedom versus order. We're not going to give the Templars big speeches at the time of death like we did in Assassin's Creed 1, because again, people complain about them, so we got to get rid of them. Now you kill people, and it's like they get maybe one line, and then you do this like ceremonial requiescat in Pache thing, which makes you seem super cool, and then you run away that's it that's that's it like half the time you don't even have to run away that just like ends the mission and now we're on to the next mission and you know no consequences for your actions so that's fine the philosophy has gone just gone and it is replaced with all this conspiratorial nonsense and all this you know superficial like da vinci code bullshit and this weird nonsensical chariots of the gods metaphysics like i hate all of the things that we got instead but i am going to try and give this game the philosophical treatment anyway, because games say things. Like, I realize that Ubisoft practically has our games are not political written on their foreheads at this point in time, like especially after the last few Far Cry games, but all games are political and all games are philosophical. It's a thing. Anytime you say anything, it's going to have a certain like bias or, you know, like leaning in one direction philosophically or politically. And Assassin's Creed 2 is trying very hard to stay away from that freedom versus order dichotomy that was so crucial to Assassin's Creed 1. Like, it's still kind of there. Like, a couple of characters do pay lip service to it from time to time, but it is not this major ongoing debate. You never get to actually sit down with the Templar and talk to them the way you did with the Templars in Assassin's Creed 1. The closest you get is, like, you kill one guy after he's just poisoned the doge and, like, he's like, yeah, I did it for reasons. And you're like, Requiem, Scott, and And that's it. Like, that's the entire confrontation. Um, Instead, it's very obvious that this game is about empowering the player. Which is not terribly unusual among video games. Like, this is normal, honestly. Most video games, especially in the AAA sphere, are very dedicated to making the player feel powerful. And everything that I talked about about the gameplay in this game is reinforcing that idea. More weapons, more tools, more skills, more, you know, flamboyant assassinations. When SEO kills people, he's got the really cool tagline. Like, Ezio is a cool dude, and you feel cool being Ezio. And importantly, the game goes out of its way, especially compared to Assassin's Creed 1, to emphasize that your actions are justified. Look at how terrible all of these Templars are. Look at all of the horrible things they're doing to people. They're all a bunch of rich jerks, and they killed your family, and you have to kill them because vengeance and stuff. Ezio is always 100% of the time presented as the righteous avenger against the Templars, who are 100% of the time presented as evil dictators and monsters and tyrants and basically power hungry, evil, terrible people. Like,. When Sean gives you the description of the various assassination targets, he makes sure to emphasize all of the horrible things they've done, all of the, you know, individual stories of them being terrible people to other people, and very much downplays their accomplishments. Which is especially weird here in the Renaissance. Like, the game very much sets you up as... You know, Ezio Auditore, wronged, lost son of Giovanni Auditore, who was murdered by the Borgia plot and the Pazzi, the rival banking family. And then it turns out that, like, you save Lorenzo de Medici, who is, you know, going to be your patron. He's going to give you all the assassination missions. And he is always, always presented as, again... Totally in the right, and totally a wronged dude, avenging himself, using Ezio as his his weapon, so to speak. And look, the Borgia do suck. The Borgia are awful, I do not want to downplay that. And Rodrigo Borgia is, like, legendarily terrible, like, even as far as Renaissance tyrants and, like, terrible popes go. But Medici was no saint. And the game is very, sort of, coy about the fact that he's making you do some terrible things. Like, if you stop and think about it for a moment, you will realize that everything that Sean accuses the Borgia of doing are things that you do for Medici at one point in time, or that you do in your quest for vengeance at one point in time. Yeah, you're murdering people. Yeah, you're killing guards. You're breaking up families. You're destroying whole lineages. Like... You're not a good person, <laughs> but the game very much emphasizes that you are. When Lorenzo sends you his assassination contracts, they always seem justified or carefully worded to make it seem like these people totally deserve what's coming to them. Or basically what it comes down to is all Templars are bad, all Assassins are good, don't ask questions just kill the people we've told you to kill doesn't killing feel great by the way like did you notice we gave you those smoke bombs that make killing really fun like that's that sucks that oversimplification really hurts especially because Assassin's Creed the first was so interested in this question was so keen to paint the world in shades of gray to emphasize that the people that you were killing were People with a good motive, but who were going about it the wrong way. Like, that's the way that Mualim describes it. That's the way that Ezio repeats it. That's the way that, like, it is usually presented. And then is further complicated by the fact that, oh, turns out Al-Mualim was working with the Templars the whole time. Again, I think that's a bit of a misstep on the part of Assassin's Creed 1, but that is nothing compared to what's going on in Assassin's Creed 2, where literally all of the characters are given mustache-twirling evil moments or heroically benevolent good moments. Like, everybody who is a friend of yours becomes an assassin, including friggin' Niccolo Machiavelli, because there's nothing morally ambiguous about that guy. Um, and everyone who's on the Templar side is just relentlessly evil, and there's nothing that can be said about it, and anything that the history books say about the the Templars that are good is just propaganda, and anything that the history books say about the Assassins that is bad is also propaganda. Also, did I mention that this game is super sexy? Like, I mentioned the prostitutes are a key mechanic for navigating the spaces, but seriously, like, Ezio gets laid at least twice during this game, I may have lost count. Like, there are two very clear moments where that is made, like, explicit. There are other moments where it seems heavily implied. Um, at any rate, again, it is frequently presented that Ezio has everything going on. He's powerful, he kills without remorse, but for just and virtuous reasons. He does whatever he wants. Look at all of his cool weapons that you, the player, get to play around with. And then he gets to get the girl at the end. Like, turns out he's sleeping with C- uh, Caterino Sforza over in Forley. And it turns out that, like, he totally gets together with Teodora after the assassination on Carnivale. Like... Ezio is now just James Bond, which is fine, again, like, I like my occasional James Bond video game as much as anybody else, but when it comes in the wake of a game that was so much about these moral nuances, these complex questions of, you know, freedom versus order and exactly how we're supposed to be employing each of them in order to make a functional society, it just seems really, really dumb. And that's kind of the takeaway here. Like, Assassin's Creed 2 is a good, dumb game that's pretending to be smart, and that's really bad at it. Like, Assassin's Creed 1 isn't terribly smart. But it's aspiring to intelligence. It's proof of concept is we want to make a game that can be both simultaneously historically accurate and interesting and morally complex and philosophically like nuanced, and also that is a lot of fun to do. Here in Assassin's Creed 2. The reviews are back. People want dumb fun, not philosophical ambiguity, so we're going to give them Da Vinci Code instead of Philosophy, and we're going to give them lots of fun murder sessions instead of careful planning sequences and and lots of strategizing. And Assassin's Creed 2 is a fun game to play. It's a good game. Like, it doesn't warrant all that crazy praise it got. I mean, honestly, that was just, again, like, it's not like we've gotten away from it. Video game reviews have always been way too complimentary to the games that do like virtually anything right, Um, but Assassin's Creed 2 is kind of disappointing. It is in many ways delivering on the proof of concept provided in Assassin's Creed 1. It gives you that power. It gives you these, you know, strategic opportunities. It gives you more interactions with the environment on a moment-to-moment, beat-by-beat basis, But it subtracts the planning, and it subtracts the philosophy, and it subtracts the, you know, ambiguity and the the nuances of the story. And that's rough. And what it supplants it with is truly egregious. Like, I don't think I'm totally alone on this one, because they very much started phasing out the conspiracy Da Vinci Code nonsense in the years to come. My understanding is that it's still supposedly canon, But it's very much not cool to do, you know, Minerva looking at you in the camera and saying, Hey Desmond, you're the prophet and you need to save the world from solar flares. Um, We are going to actually finish that plot by Assassin's Creed 3, so we will in fact return to this idea several times. Um, But it is very obvious, based on the trajectory in later games, especially in Assassin's Creed 3's transition to 4, that we're getting off of it. And I don't know what happens after 4 and 5, because, again, haven't played after 5. So, this is why I felt compelled to rant so much about Assassin's Creed, and honestly, this is the big one for me. The move from Assassin's Creed 1's potential to Assassin's Creed... Uh, Assassin's Creed 2's delivery is really interesting to me. Troubling, frustrating, annoying, frequently just... in infuriating, but nonetheless fascinating. And this is why I want to talk about this series. Now, because this is literally the day before my first day of class, and because I imagine things are going to get absolutely nuts for me in the next coming weeks, I imagine I'm not going to have a whole heck of a lot of time to play Assassin's Creed or to record lectures. So, we're going to leave this in abeyance for the time being. Um, I hope that I will be able to get through Assassin's Creed Brotherhood and Revelations, the two sequels to Assassin's Creed 2, the remainder of the Ezio saga, if we may be permitted such grandiosity. Um, and then we'll talk about both of them together, because I don't think either one of them necessarily warrants a whole lecture all by itself. Um, so we'll talk about both of them in any prospectives. Third lecture that I decide to do, but again, probably isn't going to be for a while. At any rate, Thank you for allowing me to rant at you about two games that I have very complex feelings about and the way that these sequels sort of relate to one another. Hopefully we will be able to do this again sometime. I do, in in fact, look forward to talking about them with you. Um, But it may be a while. Sorry about that. Um, So, more stuff to come, more Bradbury to come. Hope you're looking forward to that. And I'll talk to you about Assassin's Creed some other day.